You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 631 for October 25th, 2023. On this episode, pianist Mark Copeland. Members of the Jazz Session also get This I Dig of You, the Patreon bonus show, on which I ask the guest from the main show to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy. Mark talks about science fiction. You can hear the bonus episode by becoming a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll also get early access to every episode of the Jazz Session and occasional behind-the-scenes info or other bonus material. Plus, for every episode, I choose one Patreon supporter to name as the sponsor of that episode. This show was brought to you by Adam Starr. Thanks, Adam. Mark Copeland's new album is called Someday. Here's the opening track. Copeland, welcome back to the Jazz Session. Thank you, Jason. Glad to be here. I'm really glad to have you. We're going to talk, probably not exclusively, but at least initially, about the album Someday, which features saxophonist Robin Verheyen, Drew Gress on the bass, and Mark Ferber on the drums. And I just want to start off with that ensemble. I, I know it's kind of an overused word, but telepathic surely seems like a good fit for the interaction of this band, whether it's you and Robin playing melodies together, whether it's the way the rhythm section kind of turns on a dime. It just, it really sounds like a group of people comfortable with one another. I'd love to hear about this ensemble and about what it's like playing with them. We feel the same way. We really do. It feels like a band. And, you know, on the one hand, as long as I've been doing this, it's sort of like when you meet someone new, you know, not all the time, but many times, you know, in five minutes, this is this is going to work or this is not going to work, whether it's a, a relationship or whether it's a professional thing or whatever it is, friendship. This does not negate the fact that even the most kind of spontaneous relationships that really seem to get it from, from Jump Street even they definitely mature and grow and and 
develop over time. And, you know, the, the, the three musicians in this band all have a history with me. Probably the shortest one is Mark Ferber, whom I played with a couple times. And, and then about, I can't, I can't remember how many years ago, but I would say it was the last two, three years when Gary Peacock was still touring with me and Joey Barron, Joey couldn't make some of the tours and we had some work coming up and it was kind of on me to just pick a drummer I thought would work. And I called Gary. I said, can I bring somebody up there? He said, sure. We checked his dates, my dates. There was no time. So I just had to, you know, sort of close my eyes and I think this guy will work. I could have been wrong. I've been doing this kind of thing my whole life. And I've gotten pretty good at it, but you never get it right all the time. In this case, it worked out great, both personally and musically. But that's relatively recent. Robin is the youngest member of the band. I think he just turned either 40 or 41, which is, you know, 35 years younger than me. But we met, I think, about 10 years ago, maybe eight, maybe 12, at the Vanguard one night. And I knew him by name because he had made a record for the German label Pirouette, whom I did quite a few recordings for between, like, 2004 and 2008 or nine, something like that. And, you know, we shook hands and we agreed to get together and play because it turned out he lived 20, 25 minutes up the train from me in, in Connecticut. So because his, his wife was uh, teaching French at a private school up there. And, you know, we started playing a couple times a month and to be honest, when we first started, and it wasn't great, but it was a chance to play, and I liked it, you know. And, you know, it, it just sort of grew, you know, and then because he's kind of the local hero in Belgium, he started to get gigs over there, and, you know, the, they were under his name. But, you know, one time he wanted to hire Gary and Joey and me, and we did that, and I was kind of the go-between. And we did, a, you know, tours over the years, mostly festivals in Belgium, sometimes some other stuff, with different lineups. And then at one point a couple years ago, we just all decided, okay, why don't you come with me and my band for a while? And this was the current band and I couldn't have been happier because just to see his playing kind of blossom over those 10 years, you know, when he started with me, he was like this 30, 31 year old had potential, but he didn't really have a thing. And boy, did he grow. It was just incredible. Also as a composer, 
you know, the same thing. He would bring tunes and they were okay in the beginning. And all of a sudden, two, three years in, he's bringing the stuff over. And I'm like, whoa, this is getting serious, you know. And I, I really like his tunes. They're, you know, they're very frequently, you know, harmonically a little off center, which is something I like. And so forth and so on. And then Drew, who's, I think now he's 61, 62 years old, which makes him almost the same age as me, close. I first played with him when he was like 19, because I was living in the Washington, D.C. area. And, you know, I played jazz gigs, and then I played cocktail parties if somebody wanted a jazz pianist. And I had this gig, the guy wanted piano and bass. So I had gotten his name from somebody, you know, and he showed up. I mean, he was a kid, you know, he played the instrument great. But, you know, I said, people were just standing around talking and drinking. We kind of could have done whatever we wanted. I said, well, what tunes do you like? He said, well, I don't know anything. I said, well, all right, Green Dolphin Street. Out comes the little miniature wheel book. And he flips through it to Green Dolphin Street. Well, he played great, but, you know, the depth wasn't there. I mean, it was 19. Come on. So I said, listen, after we, after we left, sometime in the next week or two, I said, look, let's start playing together. I said, you play great, but I want you to take that real book outside and burn it. And just learn the tunes by heart, man. That's the only way you're going to. And the same thing over the next five, 10 years, he just grew and became really a monster player, you know, and we've been at it on and off for the last, you know, 30, 40 years, I guess. 40. Yeah, because he was 19. In hearing you talk both about Robin and about Drew, for whatever reason, one of the the old saws you hear in the entertainment world is that these days, shows like Seinfeld and Friends and those kinds of shows would never be allowed to fail long enough to succeed. And that when those shows came out, they, for whatever reason, got longer leashes than modern shows tend to. And so they figured out how it worked and their what their formula was, things they didn't have nailed down in the beginning. And I was reminded of that as you're telling these stories, because you also opened up by talking about that kind of instant chemistry that you often have with people. You know, the, I mean, the general you often have with people. And this sounds like kind of a combination of both things, like 
a feeling that there was something there, but also a feeling that in some cases that thing needs to grow and to mature and, you know, you need to figure each other out. And it, it strikes me as a, a kind of patience that maybe not everybody offers in collaborative situations. Well, that's true throughout life, right? And it's certainly true in, in the arts. It's true in sports. I mean, look at Brock Purdy, you know. So the the thing is, I mean, when the music grows, then it has a chance to get really serious. So when young players, not only just withdrew 40-some years ago, not with Robin only 10 years ago, but with whomever, it's still happening. Younger players will kind of make it clear to me that they'd love to play. And, you know, I'm not a spring chicken anymore, and I've, I got a, a lot of my time with everything I got going on, and I got three grown kids and all that. But I really feel it's important to, like, get together with them for two reasons. One, so they can have the opportunity to grow. But two, because I can have the opportunity to grow. And, you know, one meeting isn't going to do it. And and just a, a more recent example is there's, there's two cats in New York. There's a drummer named Colin Stranahan. And, and he's been on this show. Yep. Yeah. And a bassist named... Dominic Duval, whose dad played bass with Cecil Taylor. Yeah. Which is a heavy, you know. <laughs> so separately and then later together, you know, they would want to play or somebody else would hire all of us to do something. And, you know, this has been going on for three, four, five years. And lately, in the last six, seven, eight months, We've gotten together, the three of us, to play two or three times. And, you know, the last time they were here is about two months ago. All of a sudden, everything got plugged in. And it was like, not only was it fun and the music was really good, but I felt, okay, there was, there was this is the reason why I do this, you know. So I try and make myself available as much as I can for selfish reasons, as well as for, for non-selfish reasons. And, and, you know, I mean, I had people show faith in me when I was young, you know, and it, it's, it's a small contribution I can make in trying to help the music grow. And it, it, it makes me feel good and it, it leads to better music and the, I mean, you know, James Moody gave me a shot. Gary Peacock gave me a shot. And so and and with Gary, he didn't even mess around. In five minutes, he was like, oh, this is great, you know. And I'm like, this is Gary Peacock? You know, I couldn't <laughs> believe it. But he was so sweet. He just, he felt it immediately. And the one thing about Gary, there was no BS about it, you know. Yeah, everybody doesn't have the patience for it, but but... If you have the patience, you get the rewards. And, and I'm still trying to play new, new, new ways of playing with new players and new situations and just try and keep the music going.
You've talked before about leaving space for things to happen. And for example, not stepping into the studio with everything nailed down and not necessarily a rigorous plan. And I wonder on someday, does is that a, an apt description of how this session went? I'd love to hear about that. Oh, 100%. And, and the, the thing is, any recording session I do, I figure the album's going to need maybe eight tunes, more or less. I'll come in with, you know, four or five definites, maybe a total of six or seven. The last two or three, I'm not sure if I even have them. And then I just, whatever happens, you know. And the the nice thing that happened on that session, and, and I'm I'm extremely proud of it, is and and it's so important it's actually in the little press kit we have about the album you know near the end of the session which was a, it was it was kind of a heavy session for me i was dealing with some medical news which in the end it was fine but i didn't know that at that time and it was the second day of the session we pretty much gotten everything done and Robin says, listen, everything we did is fine, but I'm wondering if some of these wouldn't do with maybe another shot at them. And I think the way to do it is let's just play like we were in a club. Let's just play a set. No talking, nobody go to the bathroom, just play. And, you know, we, we knew each other well enough by now. I could start any tune. I didn't have to say, okay, let's do so-and-so. I just start playing. And, you know, I was kind of done. But, you know, I've known, I'd known Robin long enough and had enough respect for him that I said, okay, let's do it. And the other, the other cats were sure. And three of the, at least three, I think it's three of the tracks on the album are from that last hour, hour and a half, including someday the title track, which wasn't even on the list, you know, and we'd finished, I don't know, maybe it was spinning things, but we'd finished something that was kind of up. So, you know, everything was quiet as it was after each tune. And I just started hearing it, which is what I do on gigs. And <clears throat> When I start hearing a tune, two things happen. There's a little bit of a filter, like, am I sure I want to do this? And 90, 95% of the time, I'm like, come on, are you an improviser or what? You know. So I just started playing the intro. And I mean, everybody got it without, you know, as that whole hour, an hour and a half, I never said anything. And and the vibe was just incredible. And the way Robin and I played the melody together and the space, all that, it was there. And, you know, when I was listening back to all the tracks, I just thought, this is the first track. And, and the first track on an album is, everybody always thinks, oh, you got to knock them out. You know, yeah, it's got to be exciting. I'm like, what's this band really about? You know, and, and yeah, it's a ballad, which is maybe a little unusual, but what this band is about is playing organically, 
listening to each other, all the things I did my whole life, all the things that I had so much in common with, with Peacock and with Abercrombie, which is why we ended up playing together for three and four decades. And this band has that, you know. And I thought, it's there, it's, it's, it's not long, it's not super complicated, but it's just laying it out. This is who we are. And it, it worked out great. And, and that's all because of Robin, you know. And if I was doing somebody else's record date, which, you know, it used to happen a lot. Now I'm a leader most of the time. But I would never, even if it was somebody I knew, well, I was like, well, let's do this. You know, I mean, if it was John or Gary, okay, that's one thing. But, you know, we feel comfortable enough with each other. If somebody has a suggestion, I'm ready to hear it, you know, and Robin knows that. So does Mark, so does, so does Drew. So with that kind of environment, good, thing ha good things happen. I mean, I know one thing for sure is it, it takes enough concentration and focus just to play your instrument on the record date and do a good job and stay in tune with the music. And if I got to think of every freaking thing besides that, forget about it. I'm glad to have the help. You can support what I do and help me keep doing it by becoming a member for five bucks a month. The Jazz Session is high-quality, long-form interviews with people who make the music you love. If that's important to you, I've been doing it for 16-plus years now, and I would love to have you jump into the family. You can go to thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member. It's not that expensive. If it seems very expensive to you, then you're not who I'm talking to. But if it seems pretty affordable, then I encourage you to do it and help me to keep producing high-quality interviews with improvising musicians. You can become a member today at thejazzsession.com slash join. I also write press releases and artist bios and liner notes for musicians. If you're interested in that work, you can find samples at cranewrites.com and then get in touch. Now, back to the episode. As soon as I heard Robin's soprano on Let's Cool One, I immediately thought of Steve Lacey's version on the album Evidence with Don Cherry, which is, I think, maybe my favorite performance of that song that I had ever heard, certainly as I was coming up. And so two questions, I guess. One is, does that particular version have any imp impact on your your version here and two, but just to a more general question if the answer to that is no or regardless could you talk a little bit about your approach to to playing monk 
Okay. Well, that was another one. I looked at Rob and I said, about halfway through the session, I said, well, let's just do something that grooves. You know, that's cool one. He said, yeah, okay. So we did. I mean, I think we may have talked for a second. Just I asked him a couple questions about how does he play this bar of the melody? Because sometimes people do it a little different. Just so I had an idea. I didn't necessarily have to get close. And, you know, it, it definitely had a thing. The, the, it's so funny you mentioned that album. That is one of my favorite albums of all time. And, you know, do I think that version influenced the way this track came out? Well, it's one of my favorite albums. But was I thinking of it? Of course not. You know, the, the other track on that album that I love is the One Ellington to Mystery Song. Yes. Which I've recorded a couple of times. I recorded it with in quartet with Ralph Alessi a few years back. And we recorded it on the album with the quintet with uh, Lehman and Brecker about three years ago, four years ago. It's a great tune. It's a great album. And, you know, I have this, this sort of perverse love of albums with no pianist. <laughs> Probably going back to, in a way, when I was a horn player in my early 20s, but also because if there's no pianist, I can hear all the harmonic possibilities, you know. I I love the the Sonny Rollins trio albums. I love uh there's an early Coltrane album where most of it is is without a piano player. And there's the album you just mentioned, you know. And I, I remember from the from the liner notes of that old prestige album, I think it's where he plays I Love You without a piano player. And Barry Harris is, I think it's Barry Harris, is on two or three cuts. And whoever wrote the liner notes said, in the liner notes, it was very, he knew what he was doing. He wrote it very cleverly. But he said, you know, given John's depth and understanding of music and his sophistication and his musical decisions, I asked him what was the motivation behind doing however many number of tracks it was, I think it was half the album or maybe a little more without, you know, with just the three instruments. And he replied, the piano player didn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's great. You can hear all these possibilities, you know, and, and, you know, I really like a company and I really like comping. And I focused on that quite a lot in my career. And a big influence on my thinking in that regard was Herbie Hancock, who leaves all kinds of space on his albums. And, you know, one of the first things I do in a master class is I'll put on, like, you know, one of the Blue Note albums with, the, with the, either the Maiden Voyage album or the one in quartet with Freddie Hubbard, you know, Imperial Isles. And I'll put on what there's a, a track or two in each where they're really popping and Freddie starts playing and Herbie lays out and he lays out for two, three choruses. And I make the class listen to it. There's 30, 40 young musicians. And I say, why is he doing that? And they all have various answers. And the point I make is, look, this is the hot young band in New York. This is the top young guys. And they're playing 
you know, with it's it's Miles's rhythm section, but they're playing with their buddy Freddie, who they really love playing with. Not that they don't love Miles, but you know, and you know, it's Herbie's day, and this is a big deal. And they get into this tune, and they're they're really hitting it. And what's the first thing Herbie does? He lays out. That's a statement about ego. It's a statement about leaving space. It's about wanting to wait and hear and feel where the music's going to go. All of those things. And this is something that, you know, Gary and, and, and John Abercrombie and I, we all had a very similar mind about, which is, you know, if you don't feel something, don't play, just wait a minute. And that can be hard to do. And I have to constantly remind myself, my number one complaint about my playing when I hear it back, if I'm doing it the way I like to do it, I'm happy. But my number one complaint will be, I play too much. You know, I wasn't really listening. As long as I'm listening, then usually it feels right. people are hearing this interview and it's actually not that far away as we're recording either you're going to be in europe playing with the string thing which features mark ferber andrew gress and also mark feldman can you tell me a little bit about that project yeah well actually first of all it's not ferber he's he's definitely in this quartet but the string thing quartet is with anthony pinchotti on drums. oh okay great thanks for correcting that no it's not a big deal both very good drummers no, Mark and I, it, it's an odd thing. You know, when the memorial concert for John Abercrombie took place, which I think was in January of 2018 at Roulette, you know, there was sort of a committee getting it together, including Sarah from ECM, John's brother-in-law, Gary, John's widow, Lisa, and me. And Danny Melvick, who used to be with Fe Festival Productions, he helped out, mostly by phone. And they all turned to me the second meeting and said, okay, Mark, you're going to be in charge of getting the musicians all fixed up with who's going to play with who. This was after a meeting where we figured out who should be asked and who, you know. So the next meeting, we kind of knew who was going to be doing it. And they turned to me and said, and I said, no way. And they said, no, come on, who else is going to do this? And I sat there. You know, John was like 
John and Gary were my two closest friends in the business. More or less 35 years with Gary. With Gary, it was 35 years. With John, it was like almost 50 years, you know. And I sort of rolled my eyes and I said, okay, but after this is over, I'm hanging up my shingle. I'm never doing this again. And they all laughed. Anyway, it was a lot of work and a lot of egos to deal with. But most people were very cooperative. And Mark, when I called him, he said, listen, I'd love to do it. Man, let's do some duo. And I said, well, Mark, I'd love to do that. But, you know, we got all these cats who want to. And it ended up, I'm not even sure Mark and I played together. I'm trying to remember. I don't think we did. But but he planted the seed. And then there was a, a year or two later, they did another smaller memorial as a benefit for the scholarship fund in John's name, which Gary's Gary John's brother-in-law is deeply involved with. And you know, Mark said, can we do duo this time? I said, oh yeah, this time we can do it, because there aren't as many people. And you know, the the violin and piano together, it's a, it's a particular sound, especially without bass and drums. And all I could think of was some fancy hotel somewhere with a cocktail lounge and they're playing kind of. So to be honest, I mean, I like Mark. I really love his playing. We got them together once and went over some tunes at his place. But, you know, I didn't feel very confident about it but you know it was for a good cause and mark's a great player and we got about a minute or two into it and something happened and i was like wow we got done we got off people really liked it, it was at birdland i can't tell you how many people came up to me afterwards and said it was the highlight of the whole evening you two guys and this was like with a lot of high power bands and all this so Mark, Mark was right, you know. So I said, okay, let's do something. <laughs> and that's how that got going. That's great. Yeah. We are, we're kind of drawing to a close, but I, I wanted to ask you a, a broader question, which is, do you think playing music has affected the way you've aged? Boy, I hope so. I mean, the first time I met Gary, he was 52 and I was, I guess, 30 something. Wait. Yeah, 35. I was 35. And I'm like, what is it with this guy? He's like a kid, you know. And, you know, I'm, I turned 75 this year, and I'm like, it's life is the same for me. I mean, I have to work a little harder to keep my energy up and keep in shape. So what? You know, I've always worked out. It's just I'm more conscientious about it. But I still, all I want to do is get up and get to the piano and start exploring new sounds and new things to make music with. You know, it's what keeps me going. And it, it's it got to have an effect. Uh, and I just, you know, I, I, an older trumpet player said, to this a said this to me a long, long time ago. And I was playing saxophone at the time. I was like 20, 21 years old. And he, he was 50-something. 
And I said, why are you doing this? He said, oh, man, I love to play. He said, I want to die with my boots on. And that he was right, you know. And he wasn't even really playing jazz, you know. But but it's a it's a I mean, I mean, you get you get into it past a certain point and it it's 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 just something you really, really love and that you're really dedicated to and, and you don't want to stop. When I can't do it well anymore, right, that's a different story. But knock on wood, hopefully I'm I'm still able to keep moving forward. bring this all full circle based on what you just said and kind of how you how you answered the very first question is there any way to parse the the chicken and egg between the fact that you play with not always but often with younger musicians having an effect on your like desire to keep moving forward or your desire to keep moving forward kind of informing the way you're able to play with younger musicians i mean is there a it feels like there's some give and take there when you surround yourself not just with your peers but also with people who are who are still coming up well that that's that's an interesting point there may be some truth to that but i think the overarching dynamic is this i'm interested in playing with musicians who are really dedicated and interested in having something happen with this music with similar kinds of values that I hold from my own experience of the music and my own experience of playing the music. And this touches on all the things that, you know, we've been talking about leaving space, listening to others, getting everybody a voice, trying to play new stuff, so forth and so forth and so on. And it works two ways. I mean, I'm interested in people that seem to be interested in that, even if they're not polished at the beginning. That's okay. They they hunt me down. You know, they find me because they hear the way I play, and it it's 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 they want to check it out. And and so it kind of works out good that way. You know, you know the the musicians that think another kind of way. They don't seek me out, and that's fine. They seek out the people they want to seek out, you know. And I'll, I love playing with anybody, whether they they share the musical values I have or not. But to be perfectly frank, I mean, I feel like the best music gets made when everybody. You don't have to want to do exactly the same thing, 
and you don't necessarily want to have everybody do something in the way you expect, but it seems to work best when people have the same shared ideals of making music together and 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 having the group almost be like they they did studies years ago when I was in my twenties of group dynamics and they found if you had a group of eight people, the ones that worked the best were the ones where the chairperson wasn't officially nominated and rather than one bullheaded person taking control of the group, where the chairmanship just kind of without any announcement of the same would shift. Somebody else would take the steering wheel for a while. Then they'd move on to another issue and somebody else would take the steering wheel for a while, which is, it's the greatest explanation of the 1969 New York Knicks I can think of. And, you know, it, it like, to me, that's when everything feels the best. So. <laughs> well, that took a turn right at the end there that I was not expecting. And I love my guest <laughs> is Mark Copeland. And in addition to being an expert on all things Nick's, Mark's new album, and actually not the only new album that Mark is on this year, but the one we've mostly been focused on is called Someday and Mark's own inner voice jazz label. Mark, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show again. Thanks so much for taking the time to do it. I really appreciate it. Well, your time is appreciated also. And tomorrow I'll be mixing our second album with this quartet. And I'm looking forward to getting that one out as well. That's exciting news. Thanks to my guest, Mark Copeland. Thanks also to the members who support this show and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Sarah Walter for the logo. You can message me for more info about Sarah. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at Jazz Sesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram and TikTok at The Jazz Session. Take a second right now to rate and review The Jazz Session wherever you listen. It greatly improves my ability to reach new folks. I've also got another podcast. It's called A Brief Chat. It's an interview show, too, most of the time, but with no specific topic. You can find it at abriefchat.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcast, my poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my newsletter, which comes out once a month. It's free. Just go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. If you like what you just heard, please help me keep doing it by becoming a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.